Good morning. I feel like a stranger around here. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews 11.23. Pastor continues his study uh, on revival in the adult class, 9.30. Uh, coming soon, studies in the confession. A blessed Mother's Day to all. And you'll note that as our tradition, there is no evening service tonight. Uh, however, today uh, begins the baby bottle drive, and that's for the center. So take a, a baby bottle, and then uh, that's to be returned on Father's Day full, not, not just returned, <laughs> fill, fill it up. <laughs> and, yeah, well, as, as the... As the case may be. Men's Bible study Tuesday at 10 a.m. at the McLeods. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, church directory. So if you haven't filled out your card, is that them there? Yes. You can raise your hand and George will hand you one because uh, we want to get going on that and George is going to start asking you to pose beautifully for a photograph. And uh, we want to get that going soon instead of just having it in the bulletin. So, so who hasn't, who hasn't, we're going to point you out. Okay. It's for members and non-members. Yeah, members and friends, of course, yes. You'll take note there of number eight, uh, the, uh, the banquet raised $11,000. So that's, that's a great praise. Well, I only have... Okay. We'll try to get the word out. Nobody else. <laughs> okay. Anything else I've missed this morning? If not, I will direct you to Hebrews 11, read 22 through 28.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. <coughs> Phil, would you lead us today? Thanks. Please take your brown hymnal, 535, <clears throat> the brown, 535, the brown hymnal. Yeah. 
13.
Scripture reading this morning is Exodus, the first chapter. We'll start in verse 15, and we'll go through the second chapter, verse 10. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you, hear, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was, uh, when she, excuse me, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds, along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get the one, of, one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the, the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I ask that the Lord would bless his word. Please take your brown hymnal again, 548 this time, 548. I'm not sure we know this one. Fred knows it. Okay. Anyone know Beyond the Sunset? Should we have it played? Okay, two, know it. Would you go ahead and play it for us, please?
Our scripture text begins in Exodus 1 and goes into chapter 2 of Exodus. Coming to our study today, let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, just the hope of what we sung beyond the sunset. We're in a lot of trouble down here on earth, living in a cursed world, shackled with our sin and problems of disobedience, looking forward to the day of sunshine, the day when there is no darkness in our heart or in our lives. And we praise you, Lord, for that anticipation. But give us a little bit of heaven today as we talk about the Word of God and, of course, the God behind the Word. And I pray that you will bless our study. So we honor mothers today, especially, Lord, those godly mothers that brought families up that knew the Lord, gave them the gospel. We look for that today as well. We need mothers, we need fathers, we need homes where God's word is taught, where the gospel is given forth, so that the Spirit of God might have the sword he needs to awaken dead hearts and bring them to know Christ. We look to thee to do your work. We are thankful and appreciative, Lord, for your grace and goodness in Christ. We give you thanks. Amen. We're going to look at the subject of Moses' mother today. Moses being placed in the bulrushes as a baby is one of the favorite Bible stories we tell our children. It's full of adventure, it's full of courage, it's full of faith, it's full of the intervention of God. So this morning being Mother's Day, I want to concentrate on Moses' mother and the faith she exhibited even with all the Israelites in the same kind of predicament, along with the Israelite midwives who defied Pharaoh's edict, refused to kill her newborn son. And this was no small act of fidelity to God when all of Egypt was hostile to the advancement of the Israeli population in their land. Which, by the way, is nothing new under the sun. Anti-Semitism, still much with us. As slaves, the Israelites fit well into the Egyptian society, as long as they were slaves. Chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that the new Pharaoh had no recollection or allegiance to the vice-regent reign of Joseph, chapter 1, verse 8. Two hundred years had passed. And in that time, forced, they forced the Israelites to build the Egyptian cities of Python and Ramses. And what is more, they worked so hard in the fields, planting and harvesting crops, chapter 1, verse 14. So it wasn't just... Cities they were building, agriculture and all of that. Genesis 47.11 tells us that when Joseph's family joined him in Egypt, 
I'm reading scripture now. He gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses as Pharaoh's district. As, excuse me, as Pharaoh directed. Now that's an editorial update supplied by Moses who later wrote Genesis. He's using the name, the district of Ramses. But you'll remember that when we studied through some of this, in the days of Joseph, it was known as the land of Goshen. Genesis 47, verse 27. But since he's writing... And he's, he's bringing us up to date where he is. A lot of uh, uh, miles have gone by. Uh, a lot, excuse, I should say years have gone by. And uh, he's writing the, the, the history. Now in an attempt to decrease and control the Israeli population, this new Pharaoh put slave masters, chapter 1, verse 11, over them to oppress them. This same Egyptian term, slave masters, appears on a wall painting in the Theban tomb of Rechmire during the reign of Thutmose III of the 18th century dynasty. It was his son, Amenhotep II, who became the pharaoh responsible for the oppression of the Hebrew people, which began in 1450 B.C. One hundred years later, a new pharaoh, Tutankhamun ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Israelite boy babies. Tutankhamun's reign was very short-lived himself, even as a pharaoh, because he was a boy king and he died at age 18. Hmm. Hmm. Think about that. He ordered all the boy babies to be killed among the Hebrews and he didn't make it past his 18th birthday. He reigned from the time of his stepfather, Akhenathan, who was married to Nefertiti. They were the real voices of power. So he must have been sickly himself. He's famous only for one thing. His famous, magnificent burial site discovered by archaeologists in 1922 with the golden sarcophagus that weighed 250 pounds. And I'm sure you have seen pictures of his sarcophagus. What a legacy. I got a gold box to lay in. But he, he was a bloody man. Various other lesser pharaohs appeared on the scene after his death. Horem Heb, a general. He was the last of the 18th century dynasty. A new dynasty, the 19th century dynasty, arose thereafter, headed by Ramses I, the city bearing his name, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11. Then Seti I and Ramses II, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, with whom Moses and Aaron had many confrontations because of his stubborn refusal to let the Israelites go. And so you can see that literally hundreds of years have passed very quickly in these opening chapters of Exodus. And the history moves quickly because Moses is compelled of God to give the details only leading up to the oppression of the Israelites by the Egyptians and their eventual exodus in triumph under Moses' leadership. He's not going to deal with every year of their imprisonment. He's dealing with the choice years that tell the story. And when we come to our story, it picks up with the birth of Moses, 1355 B.C., 
and the events surrounding the extraordinary providence of God in honor of the faith of Moses' parents named Amram and Jacobed in Moses' genealogy, Exodus 6 and verse 20, both of whom were from the tribe of Levi, according to our text, chapter 2, verse 1. So that brings us in our outline to the birth of Moses. The first thing I want you to note is there was a wicked edict of Pharaoh. It was in effect at the time, at the time of the birth of Moses. As the Israelites began to multiply in large numbers, chapter 1 verse 7 says, They were fruitful and multiplying greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. A Pharaoh arose who had no fond memories of Joseph, and so his method of reducing the Israelite population was to conscript them as slaves and work them to death. Literally. Literally. The Pharaoh's name was Amenhotep II. Slave masters were set over them, and these foremen we read in here, made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields in all their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. You know, you can almost uh, taste that Moses is trying to find mm, the most descriptive language he can employ to convey to his readers These were tough, miserable, wretched times for his people. Bitter labor. Hard labor in brick and mortar. (coughs) Used by the Egyptians ruthlessly. Can I say that that was the plan? Plain and simple. Work them from dawn to dusk. Give them little. Expect much. Make the work as hard as possible. Show no mercy when workers fell sick or were injured in the work. Reminds me of the Nazi death camps. of Hitler's Jewish solution. (laughs) As they enter the death camps written in German language over the gates, work brings freedom. In those death camps, the Jews, as well as others, remained alive only so far as they were useful to the Third Reich. Only so long. But even so, the children, the women, the old, the infirm, were routinely gassed and burnt in the ovens to make room for the able-bodied arriving daily, who had not yet undergone starvation diets and extraordinarily cruel and strenuous work. Well, Amenhotep II did something very similar in Egypt. Only thing he did not count on was 
the resilience of the Israeli people. Chapter 1, verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, I love this verse, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. What's that saying? It's saying that the uh, Egyptians intensified their efforts. Why? Because the Israelis continued to have many children and they grew in number. The next phase of oppression took place 70 years after the death of Amenhotep II in the middle of the Tutankhamun reign. Chapter 1, verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, by the way, that's just uh, two stones. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> Uh, is it, you, do you think modern birth is caught up to anything? Women go and they lay on a bed with uh, special stirrups and all of that to have birth. This is the way they were birthing in this day. And now guess what they're doing? They're birthing women in, in this squat position, just like the Egyptians were doing here. Two stones, and it was, it's less painful, it's quicker, and all of those things. We think we're so smart, don't we? We just, we just think we are. And here, here it is going on. But what I want you to see here is that they were instructed, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. Who would think that someone would actually put that out as an edict? But they did. Terrible to write that down. That's your legacy. Did you know that infanticide is nothing new? Wicked men from time immemorial have attempted to exterminate whole ethnic groups by killing off the babies. And it is always a diabolical scheme for Jesus said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8 verse 44. He's always been a murderer. And again, Paul writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. Death is our enemy. Satan is the emissary of death. Pagan cultures, ours included, are enamored with death. Whether it's a simple crossbones and skull on a black t-shirt. By the way, the Nazi SS wore that on their collars and on their hats. Or if it's just the infatuation with mayhem and murder. That's our society. Now, Pharaoh's plan was diabolically brilliant. Like Herod of Jesus' day, sending his armed soldiers into Bethlehem with swords brandished and ready to slaughter all the male children, two years old and younger, thereby eliminating any rival king. So Tutankhamen planned was to eliminate the Israelite rivals at the source. On the day of their birth, all male Israelites were killed. Today, atheistic communist China reverses the boys, or should re, I should say reveres the boys, 
and despises the girls. Couples are penalized by the government for having more than two children. And so abortion is promoted for all those who find themselves pregnant and about to exceed the quota. What I'm saying is that the merchants of death are everywhere. They are everywhere. And God despises them all. As Christians, we're to hate what God hates and love what God loves. So we should despise the merchants of death as well. We see this in the next point. The secret revolt of the midwives. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, The midwives, however, feared God. I love this. Did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. These are pretty gutsy ladies to defy the king's edict. But they feared God, which means they had more respect for the commands of God than the edicts of men. God's people historically take this road. It is the road of faith. It is the road of a clear conscience before God. It is the road of morality in an immoral world. When Peter and John were threatened by the religious authorities and even later beaten for preaching Christ, their response was this. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us to obey. When they heard this, they were furious, that is the leaders, and they wanted to put them to death. You see here that there is no regard for personal safety. The apostles knew the truth. They had been eyewitnesses to the glorious resurrection of Christ. So no two-bit religious hypocrite was going to dissuade them from the mission of speaking what they had seen and heard. Same with the midwives in Egypt. Pharaoh might have the power of the sword, and they knew they could be executed on the spot for their mutiny, but they served God of whom Jesus was extremely beneficial with them. The scripture says, Luke 12, verse 5, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and afterwards can do no more. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Luke 12, verse 5. I mean, there, there's trouble, and then, and then there's, there's trouble <laughs> with a capital T. The midwives were called on the carpet to give an account of their actions, and their answer was simply that the Hebrew women were adept giving birth before the midwives arrived, verse 19, which was likely so. So God in his providence is working this out. At any rate, verse 20 tells us, 
that God took note of the midwives, and because they feared God, he gave them families of their own. The Bible says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalm 127, verse 3. But many in the world believe children are a plague. God says they're a reward. The world's posture towards unwanted children is abortion. God says they are our heritage. So we're killing off our heritage. The world says, oh, 1.5 children, that's all you're allowed to have. Where they get, where they get I don't know what you're supposed to do. 1.5 children. That's the ideal family. That's China's policy. God says, oh, no, 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 have your quiver full of children. The best defense, your quiver, those arrows, those, the best defense against hostile enemies is a well-staffed family army. Well, Shifra and Pua defied the Pharaoh's edict. They could not bring themselves to throw newborn babies into the Nile as crocodile food. Verse 29, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Okay, plan B failed, plan A has failed. Time for a new plan. Plan C. Plan C is brutal infanticide. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave the orders to all his people. Oh, oh. I can't get the Hebrew midwives to work with me. I'm still going to get this done. I'm going to give an edict to my people the Egyptians, here it is. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So you see how things are escalating and how they're degenerating. We're going from plan A to plan B to plan C. So here, Pharaoh takes matters into his own hands by bypassing the midwives of Israel who were sympathetic to the Israelites and he commanded the Egyptians who themselves dreaded the Israelites and were not shy about ruthless conduct, chapter 1, verse 14, to partner with him in the extermination of the Jews. Let me say that tyrants play on the ignorant fears of people by postulating the worst-case scenarios. Listen to Pharaoh's rhetoric, chapter 1, verse 9 and following. Look! He said to the people, The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with these, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Yeah, right. Now, <laughs> I want you to think about this. People who by vocation where farmers and shepherds are going to pick up their hoes and their pitchforks and attack the Egyptians who are armed with horse-drawn iron chariots, spears, swords, and pikes. But that's what Pharaoh told his people. 
Do you know that Hitler did the same thing in Germany? Little Jewish shop owners, jewelers, bakers, craftsmen, tradesmen dwelling in mercantile goods, cloth, leather goods, commodities, were vilified as the enemies of the state. Almost immediately upon assuming the chancellorship of Germany, Hitler began promulgating legal actions against Germans, Germany's Jews. In 1933, he proclaimed a one-day boycott against Jewish shops. A law was passed against kosher butchering. Jewish children began experiencing restrictions in public schools. Two years later, 1935, the Nuremberg Laws deprived Jews of German citizenship. By 1936, one year later, Jews were prohibited from participating in the parliamentary elections and signs read, Jews not welcome here, appeared in many, many cities. On the night of November 9th and 10th, Kristallnacht, night of the broken glass, gangs of Nazi youth roamed through Jewish neighborhoods, breaking windows of Jewish businessmen and homes, burning synagogues and looting. In all, 101 synagogues were destroyed that night and almost 7,500 Jewish businesses were destroyed. 26,000 Jews were arrested that night and sent to concentration camps. And Jews were physically attacked and beaten, and 91 died that night. Two days later, the top Nazi officials, Goering, Goebbels, Reinhard Heydrich, and others, acting under the Fuhrer's orders, enacted stringent laws against Jewish commerce. Jews were required to turn over all their precious metals to the government. I want you to think about that. The next time you're tempted to look at that ad on television, buy silver, buy gold, and you'll be safe. You will save your IRA. Yes. That's right. <laughs> well, the government can come in and take your precious silver and gold. Germany did that. Secondly, pensions for Jews were dismissed from civil service jobs, were arbitrarily reduced. So they lost their pensions. Jewish owned bonds, stocks, jewelry, artwork can be willed only to the German state. Four, Jews were physically segregated within the German towns. Five, a ban on the Jewish ownership of carrier pigeons. <laughs> can you believe that? What was that for? That's so you couldn't communicate. You couldn't get the word out to other countries what was happening to you. Six, the suspension of Jewish driver's licenses. Seven, the confiscation of Jewish-owned radios. Eight, a curfew to keep Jews off the streets. Nine, laws protecting tenants remain non-applicable to Jewish tenants. So anything goes if you were the landlord. Pretense, false accusation, misrepresentations, bold-faced lies, terror tactics, inciting people's fears. It worked for Hitler's goon squads, and it was the same ploy used by Pharaoh in soliciting the support of his fellow Egyptians in the genocide of Israel's baby boys. Throw them into the Nile. What's in the Nile? 
Nile crocs. Nile crocs are the most vicious in the world. I look this up. They range in size from 15 to 20 feet. Weigh over a ton. They have no known predator except man. Some years ago, National Geographic Adventures, that program, reported the return of a 20-foot croc, which they thought had died of old age. Yeah, he hadn't died of old age at all. This 2,000-pound monster was attributed with the death of over 200 people along the extensive range of the Nile. He attacked everything from children to adults to cows. What I'm saying is God alone knows how many Hebrew baby boys lost their lives in Pharaoh's purge. Now what about Amram and Jochebed's faith in God? When this couple became pregnant with their child, they knew full well what the edict of the king entailed. I mean, they're not stupid. If they had a son, the midwives would not report it to Pharaoh, but some Egyptian would soon spot him and make the report. So Jochebed hid Moses for three months, but when she could no longer keep him hidden, she made a boat out of basket and floated him in the reeds of the shallow part of the Nile, out of sight of most. And she removed the normal hunting grounds removed the child from the normal hunting grounds of the Nile crocs. She set Miriam, his sister, as a watch to look after him. In time, Pharaoh's daughter, now this is not Tutankhamun, whose stillborn daughters were found buried in his tomb with him, by the way, but likely a princess of the 19th dynasty, the royal family, she came to the Nile with her attendants to bathe and discovered Jochebed's son, whom she named Moses, which means drawn from the water. Ironically, Miriam was quick to advocate a wet nurse for the baby, who just happened to be <laughs> Moses' own mother. And she was actually paid by this princess to feed and raise her own son. I think God has a sense of humor, don't you? Here's these bloody tyrants, and they're killing off the babies as fast as they can. But Moses is going to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and she's going to be nursed and brought to strength, and he is, through the nursing of his own mother. And they're going to pay her to do it. I love this. When he was weaned, usually that's about age two or three. You remember Samuel, he's three years old when he was returned to the priest to take on his service. When that occurred, Moses was taken back to the princess and he became her adopted 
son. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, let me give you some lessons on faith. Number one, faith fears God more than man. What would you have done had you been a Hebrew living under the tyranny of the Pharaoh in the days of Amram and Jochebed? There was no escape from Egypt. The Israelites were slaves under slave masters. Chapter 1, verse 11. Jochebed was heavy with a child. Jesus warned the women of his day that when Rome's legions would invade Jerusalem, how dreadful it would be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Matthew 24, verse 19. And for obvious reasons. So like it or not, Jochebed was stuck in Egypt along with her husband. The New Testament gives us insight into these parents' hearts by saying, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. Now notice, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews 11 verse 23. They didn't hide him because they were afraid. They are hiding him because they're thinking God has something special for this kid. Faith by its very nature sets priorities on what to fear and what not to fear. The disciples caught in the raging sea were sure that they were going to drown and die. And they awakened the Lord saying, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Mark 4 verse 38, to which Jesus replied, Why are you so afraid? Next statement, do you still have no faith? Hmm. So here Jesus defined their fear as no faith. What would Jesus say about you? What would he say about me? We are often fearful and fearful of lesser dangers than Moses' parents faced. So faith does not fear. Secondly, faith does more than pray. Faith acts. Amram and Jochebed laid Moses, or rather hid Moses for three months, and then they put him in a special boat that they made. The bigger he grew, the louder he cried. Oh boy, I could see that. And the more difficult it became to conceive. Where's that pacifier? Try to keep him from crying. No matter, Jochebed got a papyrus basket. She waterproofed it with pitch and tar. She placed her son in it. She set it afloat among the reeds. And she posted Miriam, his sister, to watch over him. Faith, 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 faith. In action, 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 action. Now, I may be reading between the lines here, but I can't think Jochebed chose a remote and isolated cove along the river. No, she chose a place she knew to be frequented by Egyptian women that would come there to bathe. It was like, it was like she was counting on a woman to find her baby with this desired effect, chapter 2, verse 6. It says that Pharaoh's daughter 
opened the basket and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. What unnerves men, that is crying babies, <laughs> softens women's hearts. This princess could not help but be moved by the distress and disruption and the desperate nature of baby Moses alone floating in a basket. She certainly knew about Pharaoh's edict, but she too thought it better to rescue Moses than to throw him to the crocs. And Jochebed was counting on that in faith. This is why she posted Miriam as a guard. It was planned that Miriam would have some input into the disposition of baby Moses when he was found, not if he was found. Does your faith act? Or is it all talk and no action? Talk, 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 talk. That's all some people do. They never put feet to their prayers, nor work to their hands. James says they're good at pronouncing benedictions. Oh, Lord bless you. But they're poor on supplying a needy brother with food and clothing. James 2, verse 17. Jochebed provided a safe haven for Moses in the floating basket. And by faith, she located him in a place where he would be seen and found. That tells me she had brains. She's using her head. She's not emoting. Hmm. How can I help my baby boy? Well, I know Egyptian women come down to this certain place along the Nile. They come down there to bathe. Maybe, maybe if I put him in the bulrushes there, he'll be seen, he'll be found, and I'll leave the results to God. Oh, and Miriam, you keep eye on things, because I want to know what happens. The third thing to learn about this account is that women of faith play the dominant role in this story. They play the dominant role. True, Stephen says of Amram, the father, Moses' father, for three months he was cared for in his father's house. Acts 7 verse 20. So dad certainly did his part. But observe all the women in this story who thwarted mighty Pharaoh's plan of extermination. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Israelite midwives refused to kill the boy babies. Chapter 1, verse 19, the Hebrew mothers birthed their own children without the help of the midwives so as to give the midwives no opportunity or liability to kill their babies. Moses' mother, Jochebed, and his sister Miriam concocted a plan to defy Pharaoh's edict and to save Moses. And finally, the Egyptian princess and her slave girls rescued Moses, kept his existence a secret, 
and eventually took him to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The women, the women, the women, the women, the women. Were the worker bees in all of this. Women may be the weaker sex physically, but there is no weakness of faith in these women. No weakness of faith. In the case of the Hebrew women, it says they feared God more than Pharaoh. In the case of the princess, she resolved to rescue Moses despite any national edict to the contrary. She went against her grandfather's wishes. Thank God for women of faith who are a help to their husbands and not a thorn in their side. Women who support their husbands by working to teach the children and to rescue them from the evils of our world. Solomon puts it this way. Her husband has full confidence in her. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, he says. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31, verse 11 and following. My prayer is that the Lord would give us fathers like Amram and mothers like Jochebed. And such are produced by the working of his spirit in sinful hearts. Granting these parents repentance and forgiveness and faith to trust God. And when they trust God, he rewards them greatly. Boy, in our day, in our country, we need godly parents. We need moms and dads who will rise to the occasion, fix their eyes upon Christ, and not fear the king's edicts, the government's rules and regulations that are immoral and contrary to the truth. Our Lord, we thank you for your grace to us as a country as we think of some of the atrocities we've talked about today you've preserved our country in many ways from these things oh yes and we still struggle with the abortion thing and continue to ask your blessing and intervention on that thank you for the pregnancy center and the work they do but there's so much more that needs to be done and I pray that you will help us. May we be not talkers, 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 but may we be doers of your word. Stop giving out benedictions and start putting feet to our prayers. Doing what we know to do. Obeying what we know that we've already been commanded to do. No need for a new command. It's there in black and white. Just need a heart to do it. Lord, forgive our country for its love of death. Like Egypt of old, 
like Hitler's Germany, many other totalitarian regimes, even this guy in North Korea today. Hundreds, thousands of people killed out of whims for those in authority. May our country ever be aware and vigilant to protect our young. Raise up moms and dads that love the Lord. Put him first in their lives. May we put God first in our lives with regard to these moral issues. We bless thee for our time together. We ask your blessing upon your word in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the brown hymn, or yes, the brown hymnal, number 444. Excuse me, 44. I can't read. Number 44. Jared, I don't know this hymn, but I put it in here because I like the words. Is it a familiar tune, Donna, or not? 44. We're going to sing it whether you know it or not. <laughs> Number 44, let's sing. We know the tune, don't we? Okay, you play it through one time just for us?
Jesus told his disciples, I am with you even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. Well, that's more than just the end of the year. (laughs) Or their year. Or end of the season. The end of the age. He's with his people. We will not be deserted. On your way out today, we're going to have, uh, we have a gift for the mothers. What is, where is Donna? What is that thing? <laughs> that you're giving away? It's a little planter. Like a galvanized little bucket. It can be a planter for a flower. It can be called pens and pencils. It can be papers. George, this is not a gift for you. It's a gadget thing. Ah, not a gift for me either. All right, we're dismissed.